Last Monday morning, there was tension in the air of Canberra as word got around of yet another leadership challenge against a current Australian Prime Minister. The suspense diminished as a remarkable politician, with a style all his own, went before the assembled TV cameras to explain what he was going to do and why he was doing it. Malcolm Turnbull delivered a well-prepared and carefully memorised personal manifesto. Since it is brief and important, here it is in full. A little while ago, I met with the Prime Minister and advised him that I would be challenging him for the leadership of the Liberal Party. And I asked him to arrange or facilitate a uh, meeting of the party room to enable a leadership ballot to be held. Of course, I've also resigned as communications minister. Now, this is not a decision that anyone could take lightly. I have consulted with many, many colleagues, many Australians, many of our supporters in every walk of life. And this course of action has been urged on me by many people over a long period of time. It is clear enough that the government is not successful in providing the economic leadership that we need. It is not the fault of individual ministers. Ultimately, the Prime Minister has not been capable of providing the economic leadership our nation needs. He has not been capable of providing the economic confidence that business needs. Now, we are living as Australians in the most exciting time. The big economic changes that we're living through around the, in here and around the world offer enormous challenges and enormous opportunities. And we need a different style of leadership. We need a style of leadership that explains those challenges and opportunities, explains the challenges and how to seize the opportunities. A style of leadership that respects the people's intelligence that explains these complex issues and then sets out the course of action we believe we should take and makes a case for it. We need advocacy, not slogans. We need to respect the intelligence of the Australian people. Now, if we continue with Mr Abbott as Prime Minister, it is clear enough what will happen. He will cease to be Prime Minister and he'll be succeeded by Mr Shorten. You only have to see the catastrophically reckless approach of Mr Shorten to the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, surely one of the most important foundations of our prosperity, to know that he is utterly unfit to be Prime Minister of this country, and yet so he will be if we do not make a change. The one thing that is clear about our current situation is the trajectory. We have lost 30 news polls in a row. It is clear that the people have made up their mind about Mr Abbott's leadership. Now, what we also need to remember, and this is a critical thing, is that our party, the Liberal Party, has the right values. We have a hugely talented team here in the Parliament. Our values of free enterprise, of individual initiative, of freedom... This is what you need to be a successful, agile economy in 2015. 
What we have not succeeded in doing is translating those values into the policies and the ideas that will excite the Australian people and encourage them to believe and, and understand that we have a vision for their future. We also need a new style of leadership in the way we deal with others, whether it is our fellow members of parliament, whether it is the Australian people. We need to restore traditional cabinet government. There must be an end to policy on the run and captain's calls. We need to be truly consultative with colleagues, members of parliament, senators and the wider public. We need an open government, an open government that recognises that there is an enormous sum of wisdom, both within our colleagues in this building and, of course, further afield. But above all, we have to remember that we have a great example of good cabinet government. John Howard's government, most of us served in, and yet few would say that the cabinet government of Mr Abbott is, bears any similarity to the style of Mr Howard. So that's what we need to go back to. Finally, let me say something about Canning. Now, this is an important by-election, and I recognise uh, dealing with this issue in the week before the by-election is far from ideal. But, regrettably, uh, there are a few occasions that are entirely ideal for tough calls and tough decisions like this. The alternative, if we were to wait, and this issue, these problems were to roll on and on and on, is we will get no clear air. The fact is, we are maybe 10 months, 11 months away from the next election. Every month lost is a month of lost opportunities. We have to make a change for our country's sake, for the government's sake, for the party's sake. From a practical point of view, a change of leadership would improve our prospects in Canning, although I'm very confident with the outstanding candidate we have that we will be successful. Now, you'll un please, you'll, you'll understand that I now have to go and speak to my colleagues. I trust I've explained the reasons why I am standing uh, for the leadership of the Liberal Party, motivated by a commitment to serve the Australian people, to ensure that our Liberal values continue to be translated into gov good government, sound policies, economic confidence, creating the jobs and the prosperity of the future. Remember this, the only way the only way we can ensure that we remain a high-wage, generous social welfare net first-world society is if we have outstanding economic leadership, if we have strong business confidence. That is what we in the Liberal Party are bound to deliver and it's what I am committed to deliver if the party room gives me their support as leader of the party. Thank you very much. To explain... Canning has been a safe Liberal seat in Western Australia. There is a by-election there this very weekend. Bill Shorten is the Labour leader who is seeking a shock victory. Captain's call refers to former Premier Abbott making decisions on his own as when he made the Duke of Edinburgh an Australian knight without ever consulting the Cabinet.
In conclusion, Turnbull has a sharp eye on Asian developments, as he demonstrated in a 4,000-word speech in Los Angeles last January, largely ignored and unreported in Australia, and also by YouTube. So, this time I'll have to read what Turnbull said. Turnbull, quote, The rebooting of India economic rebalancing in China, structural reform in Japan, and continued liberalization of trade and investment. These are four complex but vitally important issues for the Asia-Pacific. But first, beyond these immediate events, shaping the near-term outlook for the Asia-Pacific lies a much bigger story. That, of course, is the great geopolitical transformation of our time, the economic rise of emerging Asia, except Japan, led by China. Obviously, the questions posed by emerging Asia's rise are pivotal to the future of the Asia-Pacific region. First, how quickly would these economies expand in the next few years? And what reforms are required to rekindle the rapid catch-up growth of the early 21st century? What will the global distribution of economic production look like when the most rapid phase of catch-up growth has run its course in China, India and Indonesia? How will tensions along the way be handled, including those arising from the inevitable translation of enlarged economic resources into enhanced military power? What are the implications for the environment and for supply and demand and for natural resources? And how ready are Western nations and Western-dominated multilateral institutions to adapt to a very different distribution of global power than that which they have been used to? Turnbull then places how India and China view the world in a very intriguing perspective. Turnbull, quote, Whilst I have framed this as the Indian and Chinese economies growing to catch up with developed nations, we should remember that from antiquity until as late as the mid-19th century, China and India were the two biggest global economies, typically accounting for 40 to 50% of world GDP, according to economic historian Angus Madison. So while some in the West struggle with the thought of a future where China and India are two of the world's three largest economies, the Chinese and Indians are likely to view it as a return to the status quo ante, unquote. Turnbull deals with the question, is the past any guide to the future? Quote Turnbull, so the speed of Asia's rise cultural differences between East and West and the lingering effects of colonialism could exacerbate the likelihood of conflict. This transition in global power will be a very different handoff than that from Britain to the United States a century or so earlier. But is the past any guide to the future? Some suggest China will in time invoke a latter-day Monroe Doctrine, asserting its hemispherical primacy as the United States did nearly 200 years ago. But this analogy is quite inapt. 
The Western Hemisphere in 1823 consisted of the United States of America, the British colonies in Canada, and an assortment of struggling, weak, unstable Latin American colonies which had either just become independent or were seeking to be so. The Western Pacific today, on the other hand, apart from China, includes a nuclear power in Russia, the world's third largest economy in Japan, the world's fourth most popular nation in Indonesia, not to speak of other powerful, rapidly developing powers. The construct of the Western Pacific as a lake in which there are only two players, the United States and China, is just plain dead wrong, unquote. Campbell spoke bluntly regarding what China must do to lessen the threat of future regional conflict. Quote Turnbull, China has, under President Xi Jinping, both sought to build stronger ties with countries in the region, including Australia, and at the same time firmly restated China's claim to various islands, various reefs and shoals in both the East and South China Seas. This maritime muscularity is very different from the approach to various disputed land borders a decade ago, which saw, for example, the settlement of the border between Russia and China. While Chinese strategic thought is especially sophisticated in its view of contradiction, there seems little doubt that the tough line on the disputed islands and reefs has been quite counterproductive. It has served to do no more than remind China's neighbours of the very great importance of a strong, continuing American presence as a counterbalance to China. If China's objective is to reduce America's military presence and strategic influence in the region, it should be resolving all these territorial disputes swiftly and peacefully with a view to reassuring neighbours that they had nothing to fear as China's military power comes to match its economic might. Unquote. There you have it. Among Australian Prime Ministers, Turnbull's grasp of Asian complexities and realities is almost certainly unique.